Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Aaron Periati, who has an extremely long bio, psychiatrist, director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., director of the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto. He formerly taught psychiatry at the UCI School of Medicine, was a director of medical ethics program at UCI Health, and was the chairman of the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. He's the author of the just published the new normal, the rise of the biomedical security security state. I've got the advanced copy um, on my Kindle, but I'm going to buy the physical copy when it uh, comes out. I think uh, today or tomorrow. And you absolutely have to get this book. It's literally what I've been saying for two plus years. And welcome to GNE, Dr. Hariati. Thanks. It's great to be. It's great to be here with you. Now, I I like to get right uh, into it. Your book starts in the 1930s, where you're talking about population control eugenics, medical tyranny, which uh, basically came from the Anglo-American establishment and later exported to Nazi Germany. I've been talking about that since uh, 2020. And, you know, one or two people may have commented uh, on my podcast, how how dare I compare the 1930s to the 2020s? But um, I don't take those comments seriously because, you know, back in 2020, I had on renowned Jewish historian Edwin Black to discuss the biomedical security state. He himself compares it to the Jewish ghetto. He calls this coming Castro society the algorithm uh, ghetto. You cite philosopher Del Noche in your book who says totalitarianism did not stop after World War II and that we're threatened by systems that make Nazism and Stalinism pale in comparison. So I think it's only right that we use them as markers. Uh, You also talk about spiritual forms of genocide. So basically, you know, just to start, could you give us a little bit about the historical context of the biomedical security state as you've diagnosed it? Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. That history is relevant to the current day. As Mark Twain once quipped, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. In other words, these historical precedents and examples uh, don't mean that, you know, this is not this is not necessarily to compare the current or the previous administration in the United States to Hitler's Nazi regime. But it remains an undeniable historical fact that the Nazis governed for virtually the entirety of their existence under Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which permitted the suspension of German laws during a state of emergency. And here in the United States, we are still operating under a state of emergency that's been renewed every 90 days to almost no media attention. And in this state of emergency, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers he wouldn't otherwise have under states of emergency declared in individual states in the U.S., like my home state of California, which is also still up operating under a state of emergency for COVID. The governors gain additional powers. Unelected public health bureaucrats, public health officers gain additional powers. So we can ask, you know, how did Hitler, who people forget, was a democratically elected Chancellor of Germany? How did he go from a democratically elected leader of the country to a totalitarian dictator? Well, this mechanism of doing things that he otherwise wouldn't have been able to do under Germany's constitution by declaring a state of emergency that went on for 12 plus years was a key part of that story. But as you point out, I begin in the preface to the book with an account of the eugenics movement. And when people hear the word eugenics, they often think of the Third Reich and Nazi Germany, not surprisingly. But what a lot of people are not aware of is that the eugenics movement in the early 20th century, prior to the rise to power in Germany of Hitler's regime, eugenics was mostly an Anglo-American phenomenon. It began in Great Britain and the United States, and it was only later exported to Germany. And I tell that story briefly in the prologue to the book. And the reason I think that story is so relevant is that what came out after World War II with the Nuremberg trials, which included the Nazi doctor trials, was a very important document. Most people have heard of it, though few people have read it, called the Nuremberg Code. And I encourage our listeners to go and read the Nuremberg Code. It's not a long document. It's a couple of pages long. And the very first principle articulated in the Nuremberg Code was the principle of free and informed consent for research subjects. And later on, that was also applied to patients. 
to freely choose to accept or decline a medical intervention or participating in a research study, being a research subject, uh, after giving after being given accurate information about the risks and benefits of this particular intervention. And that was precisely the, the central principle of medical ethics really for the last 50, 60 years, but that was precisely the principle that was abandoned during the pandemic with things like uh, vaccine mandates, for example. A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again, financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Michael Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. Since 2020, Ron Unz of Unz.com has argued the COVID outbreak was due to a U.S. biowarfare attack against China and Iran. Jeffrey Sachs, the Russian Ministry of Defense, and others are now making similar suggestions. Weeks before COVID appeared in Wuhan, a top U.S. biowarfare official ran the Crimson Contagion exercise on how to protect America against infection if a dangerous virus suddenly appeared in China. After COVID appeared in Wuhan, it jumped to Iran, infecting Iranian leadership only weeks after America had assassinated Iran's military commander. Iran publicly accused America of an illegal biowarfare attack and filed a complaint with the UN. Ron Unz has produced a free ebook and is available for interviews to further discuss this issue. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. And, uh, you know, you can see I've got Edwin Black's book. He talks about that there. During the pandemic, I even purchased an artifact from Italy, uh, memorabilia on eBay. The uh, Nazi from 1938, uh, the Aachen Pass is right behind me. That was to prove uh, your biological Aryan purity. And they separately, the Nazis also had the Health Pass, which... For me, it's, you know, the, the COVID pass is, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's, you, you couldn't, you know, do a lot of things w- without it. Um, and when it comes to COVID or the pandemic, there are a lot of things one can talk about, you know, the, the, the mandates, the, the, the masks, the gel, the, the vaccines, PCR tests. And I, I recently had on Justin Hart to, to discuss such, uh, matters. But, you know, for me, a lot of this has always been background noise. The, the single greatest threat that I identified in, in 2020 has been precisely what uh, you dubbed the biomedical security state. I mean, I, I loved your book. For me, you, you just nailed it. And the, the end game, as I view it, is this digital social credit system. Uh, I like Edwin Black's term, uh, algorithm ghetto, which is already operating in some parts of, of China. And you also point out in America, it's, it's here. And in China recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, people are getting locked out of this system and they're said to be experiencing digital uh, death. And so you say the biomedical security state has arrived. It's an unholy alliance of public health, digital technologies of surveillance and control and the police powers of the state. So uh, do tell us more. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think that frames kind of some of the central themes in my book very well. So let me sort of walk through some of these terms. And I've been a fan of Edwin Black's book on Nazi Germany, and he's done tremendous work uh, for years on that. And I hadn't heard this term. Uh, what, what was it? Digital ghetto? Well, he uh, calls it algorithm ghetto because you're, you're d- digi- dig- digitally placed uh, and, you know, where, where all your accounts are, are turned off and you're effectively yeah. a non-entity, as he calls it. Yeah. So let's talk about how this works, because, you know, for many people, this may sound uh, foreign and, and perhaps e- exaggerated. So the biomedical security state, which I describe in my book, The New Abnormal, is, as you as you said, the sort of unholy welding of these three different things that used to be more or less distinct. One is a public health apparatus that over the last 20 years has become increasingly militarized. The second aspect, uh, which has only been available really since 2007 with the invention of the iPhone, is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control that can extract massive amounts of data uh, from their users. And I'll talk in a, in a minute here about how that was done during the pandemic. So those are the first two aspects, a militarized public health, digital technologies of surveillance and control. 
welded to the police powers of the state, the the enforcement powers of, well, in this case, elected officials who were promulgating certain COVID policies, but also unelected state bureaucrats and even uh, privatized entities like large corporations that were empowered to force vaccine mandates on their employees. So you have some director of an HR department in, you know, in a company or a corporation mandating that you take an injection of a novel vaccine. This is really sort of an unprecedented level of intrusiveness and surveillance and control over people's bodies. The surveillance aspect, which I unpack in the book as well, really started prior to the pandemic, but was massively accelerated during the last three years. In fact, all of these things that I describe in the new abnormal began roughly 20 years ago, pretty much uh, in the year or two following 9-11. There was this, this push for a more militarized public health, this push toward a biosecurity model of governance. But it, it was sort of operating in the background and behind the scenes in, in the administrative state for really the last two decades, but fully manifested during the pandemic. So I also, in the new abnormal, I also try to get into the history of uh, how that unfolded in the last 20 years and then how it showed its hand during the pandemic. But the, the surveillance uh, happened really when governments decided with or without the consent of the governed that they could utilize digital technologies to basically spy on unsuspecting citizens. So back in 2021, during the Omicron wave, Israel held an emergency legislative session where they passed an emergency law permitting the Shin Bet, which is basically their country's equivalent of the CIA, to use track and trace data extracted from people's phones in order to basically track Omicron patients and also track whether or not citizens were following uh, lockdown, stay-at-home orders, school closures, uh, closure of, of churches, synagogues, and so forth. Well, that was at least done publicly. You could read about it in the New York Times. and It was done by elected officials. We learned a few months later that Canada had also been doing the exact same thing with, uh, in this case, without the knowledge or consent of the Canadian citizens. In fact, Justin Trudeau, just six months prior, had said publicly that he was not going to do this during the pandemic, but the Canadian government did it anyways. Now, earlier this year, Vice broke the story that the CDC was likely, uh, uh, was not likely, was in fact also extracting track and trace data from uh, telephones, uh, telephone, smartphone-based data from citizens. And in that case, they they bought the data from private companies, uh, some of which were quite shady, which I also describe in the book. And the CDC admitted that they were using this to, again, monitor social gatherings at schools, at churches, um, to, to tr use sort of track and trace type data to see if people were following lockdown orders during the uh, during the late waves of the pandemic. The CDC also admitted that they plan to use this data for other public health applications on into the future, you know, at least until 2026. And they named several of the other public health applications, which some of which really stretched the definition of public health, which is another aspect of the biosecurity state that we can talk about later. This, this expanded notion of what constitutes public health and the redefining of other issues as public health issues. We now know also that the CIA has been doing warrantless backdoor searches of Americans and the Senate Intelligence Committee has uh, called our attention to this uh, also within the last few months of, of this year. So these trends uh, were, you know, these were things that various state and private actors had been interested in doing for years, but the pandemic and the state of emergency and the fear of basically that was that was pervasive in in our populations, fear of the virus, uh, the fear of contagion, 
was used as a pretext to advance a lot of these aims. Another concerning thing about that, that what's euphemistically called bulk data collection, is that we now know that that data can easily be de-anonymized. So supposedly with this you know, track and trace data from phones, it's only connected to uh, a number and you can't actually connect it to a person. But researchers have shown with the very data set that the CDC used, that with only four data points, you can readily identify which individual citizen this data point belongs to or this tracking number belongs to. So this is this is not uh, the kind of thing that is uh, necessarily going to be used only for benign purposes. This could easily be used for all kinds of other purposes uh, that would allow not just our intelligence agencies like the NSA or the CIA to spy on their own citizens, which is not part of their mandate. They're supposed to protect us from foreign threats and from domestic terror threats, but treating uh, treating normal, healthy individuals as though they're a domestic terror threat obviously goes outside the bounds of the constitution. Uh, but it's also allowing uh, agencies outside of the national security agencies, agencies like the CDC, to do likewise. Uh, this is a very concerning trend. It's a very concerning development, especially as the definition of what counts as public health continues to expand. I, I give two examples of that sort of expanded reach of public health in the book, but there are many others if you, if you just turn on the news today and start paying attention to headlines. The first example comes from really the first year of the pandemic during lockdowns when we had the George Floyd uh, BLM protests following that, that event, you know, springing up in major cities, not, a, not only in the United States, but around the world. And during those protests, some people raised concerns that, you know, we're all supposed to be sheltering in place and staying at home. Uh, this is this was during the, the, the initial phase of the lockdowns. How come these people are being allowed to gather in these sort of mass gatherings where contagion could easily spread? And 1,200 different public health officials signed a, a published letter declaring racism to be a public health emergency. And therefore, these public gatherings were necessary and allowable uh, for this particular issue because supposedly racism, at least in that moment, took precedence over COVID as the most um, important uh, public health issue or public health crisis. Now, one of the things that that this does, regardless of you know your views on those protests or your views on racial issues, just set that aside for the moment. But when racism was defined as a social issue, you know, as in the 1964 Civil Rights Act in the United States, or when it was defined as a moral issue or a religious issue, as in Martin Luther King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail, that sort of classic work of of Dr. King. That framing of the issue of racism allowed all citizens to hopefully be part of the solution, right? We can argue about what the best solution is. We can argue about the nature of the problem, how pervasive it is, what should be done about it. But it was something that all of us in a participatory democracy could be a part of. Well, when you take racism and you frame it from a social or a moral issue to a public health issue, suddenly it becomes the kind of thing that only the quote unquote, experts can opine on, right? So are these protests justified? What is the meaning of these protests? You know, public health officials or quasi public health officials are sort of monopolizing the, the conversation when they turn it into a public health issue. The second example I give in this regard is climate change. If you read carefully over the last probably three to four years, even a little bit prior to the pandemic, you started seeing this. If you read the headlines on climate change, and again, set aside the debates about climate change and you know how serious a problem it is, what should be done about it. But if you read the headlines on climate change, it's been redefined over the last few years from an, an environmental issue, an ecological issue, to a public health issue. And climate change is now framed in terms of its public health harms to human populations primarily. 
there are many voices now that want to take it from a public health issue to a public health crisis or a public health emergency. So there have been serious proposals that appeared actually during the initial lockdowns for COVID. You started seeing proposals advocating and coming from serious academics with you know Ivy League appointments, coming from politicians, elected officials who are actually in power uh, in various places around the world. You started seeing calls for let's look at rolling lockdowns to deal with climate change. And during the recent energy crisis, you know, with everything that's been going on in uh, in Ukraine, you have serious proposals to use lockdowns, including uh, proposals from the United Kingdom to use lockdowns to deal with the energy crisis. So part of what I'm trying to do in, in the new abnormal with this book is to help people to understand that even, even though a lot of particular pandemic policies have been rolled back, right? A lot of vaccine mandates have been rolled back, though not all. Most jurisdictions that were using the Green Pass or similar vaccine passports have dialed those back. But the infrastructure that those things rested upon is all still in place. And we've developed this new model of governance, which basically uh, dictates or requires that we jump from one emergency situation to the next. So the new abnormal is really not so much a retrospective on the pandemic. Uh, I use the pandemic in part to help people understand the nature of the biomedical security state. But it's really a book about the future. It's, a, it's about what's coming next. What is the next step in this process that is coming down the pike? How does this notion of the state of exception or state of emergency now function in our governing institutions so that we can sort of wake up and realize, okay, if we don't start pushing back against some of these measures, COVID is going to be just the beginning. There's going to be another declared public health crisis very soon. We've already seen attempts with whether it's monkeypox or climate change to, you know, get the next crisis on on the television screen and in everyone's social media feed so that we can stay in that sort of crisis management emergency mode. And if these things haven't taken hold yet, it's only a matter of time until, you know, a computer virus or, you know, some other naturally or unnaturally occurring uh, contagion uh, or some other issue entirely is declared the next public health crisis for which emergency pandemic type measures are going to be necessary. I, that, that's why I think your book is so on the mark, because this is my way of thinking. It's been my way for the past two years, because I'm anticipating this is just the beginning. And I, I'm one of the few people, I mean, around me that I, I'm really freaking out about this stuff because, you know, I, you, you mentioned the domestic um, terrorism and uh, I, I sort of wanted to get to that next, uh, you know, censorship. Your second chapter in the book talks about, um, you know, what happened to you, to you, your experience. But we're starting to see people have their bank accounts frozen, not only frozen, but closed uh, permanently. And I mean, I'm, my Patreon was uh, banned in 2021. Uh, I was the first to interview Francis Boyle and get his theory that um, uh, Corona was, uh, you know, he it's he actually he includes the um, my interview with him in the first chapter in his book uh, that it was a bio uh, weapon. And and then you know you mentioned the DHS and domestic terrorism. Terrorism. The back in April, the first week. Uh, they rolled out the dis now defunct Disinfo Governance Board. Uh, I was banned from PayPal forever, as were a few other podcasts. And that tells you then that this is directly, I view this the DHS telling PayPal to shut us down. That's fascism. And That's uh, yeah, and, and today the DHS, some documents were posted just just this morning, like just an hour before we connected, uh, talking about how they're going to be furthering this sort of stuff and the DHS is going to be getting involved. And so maybe if you want to, uh, and this is unprecedented. This this level of unscientific uh, censorship it's it's like the Middle Ages again. If you want to just uh, you know talk about uh, touch on your experience and so many people. I read uh, Peter Dr. Peter McCullough. Now he's being stripped of all of his uh, credentials, and it, it's it, it's it's crazy. If you want to comment on all of that, yeah. So the the punishments these days don't have to rely on uh, concentration camps or you know secret police in jackboots or 
know, even mass surveillance, although that is a major issue that I, that I talk about in the book, the, the central feature of all totalitarianisms, according to the great political theorist Eric Vogelin, who studied the 20th century totalitarianisms, Nazism, fascism, communism, he said the central feature is not any of those things. It's not concentration camps or mass surveillance or, um, you know, the police, even, even secret police, the police powers of the state. The central feature is the forbidding of certain questions, right? The inability to ask questions, which can get you uh, kicked off of social media, which can get your podcast uh, canceled or your means of supporting yourself through payment mechanisms like Patreon or, or PayPal. This is um, this is authoritarian. This will lead to, uh, eventually this will lead to totalitarianism, a kind of soft totalitarianism, the, the, the algorithmic totalitarianism that you referred to earlier. Uh, this is a very serious concern. And I, I cite some examples in the book just to try to concretize this and make this more real for people who have not yet been on the receiving end of it. So the very opening of chapter one, I talk about the truckers convoy in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in Canada. And many people will remember this long convoy, several kilometers long, uh, driving to Ottawa to protest at that time uh, what the truckers took to be excessively coercive pandemic measures that were harming their ability to work. So uh, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports at the U.S.-Canada border uh, and, and other, other things that were making life for them really impossible. And instead of meeting with the truckers, Justin Trudeau, first of all, fled the city like a spooked child. Uh, and then, again, refusing to even hear their concerns or negotiate or talk with them, he invoked the Emergencies Act. There's that theme again, this declared state of emergency. He invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history, which allowed him to suspend certain constitutional powers, certain power, uh, certain rights that Canada has under its Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, he did a couple of things with those emergency powers. Number one, he used the police to rough up the truckers and forcibly remove them from the city of Ottawa, the capital. But number two, probably even more concerning, is that without a court order, without a warrant, he froze the bank accounts of the truckers and of anyone who contributed to them financially. So imagine giving 50 bucks to support this convoy, this, this uh, public protest, one day and then going to the ATM the next day and you can't withdraw money from your checking account because your bank has frozen it under the directives of the national government. That's actually a small scale uh, example of what we are going to see more and more of with the rollout of the next two steps in the biomedical security state. Uh, that are very quickly going to be coming down the pike. And I think it's important for our listeners to be aware of these things. Uh, this is another reason that that I wrote the book, right? Not just to do a kind of post-mortem on the pandemic, but to also to help people understand, okay, what are the next steps that are going to be rolled out in the advance of this biomedical security uh, paradigm? And I think those, those two next steps are going to be, first of all, digital IDs, that are tied to biometric data, tied to your iris scan, your facial scan, your fingerprint, um, demographic information, eventually information that's, that's gleaned from wearable or implantable devices about your moment-to-moment -moment vital signs, literally, literally your moment-to-moment -moment emotional state is essentially what you can glean from that kind of information. Those uh, digital IDs are going to be pitched uh, in terms of convenience, right? You show up to the airport, you know, without your driver's license or without your passport. You're going to miss your flight if you have to drive home and get it. Well, we'll just take your iris scan and we can identify that it's really you. And you can, you know, go ahead and walk through the security line and not miss your flight. So this will be the enticement. You know, forget your wallet at home. You'll still be able to engage 
in certain market transactions or uh, or whatever you might need those things for. That is going to be tied to the, the second piece that we're seeing already being rolled out, and that is central bank digital currencies. These are cryptocurrencies that need to be distinguished from decentralized crypto like, like Bitcoin, a central bank digital currency like the EUN in China, which was rolled out during the Beijing Olympics and actually exported internationally, not just to their own citizens, because they required anyone who participated in the Beijing Olympics from other countries to utilize that app to do any market transactions to buy or sell anything when they were at the Olympics. And now that app is on their phone. Uh, it's got their demographic information. It's got their location information. And it's also it also now has their financial information. Uh, the feds in the, the U.S. are considering and talking about, they've, they've been floating the idea of a digital dollar. This will allow the government to basically track each and every one of your market transactions to, to tax them um, you know, right there in the moment, to, to skim off the top of anything that comes through your digital wallet, uh, to see the kind of behavior that you're engaging in, what you buy, what you sell, what you give money to. And there's going to be a push once people have gotten used to the central bank digital currency tied into your digital ID. So again, your digital wallet could be something up in the cloud. You don't even have to carry it around with you. Once people get used to that, there's going to be a push to phase out cash. But what people need to realize that what you're actually going to have in your digital wallet with uh, let's say you get a tax refund from the government. They they give you $1500, you know, for good behavior, right? Because because you've got your boosters and, you know, you whatever. Well, that money that's now in your wallet, the government could say uh that's going to expire in 9 months. They could also say you're only allowed to spend that tax rebate on certain things that we approve of, green energy, for example. Um, and you're not allowed to to use it on these disfavored industries, or you're not allowed to give it to these disfavored nonprofits or what have you. So what you actually have in your digital wallet with your digital dollar is not a dollar like the dollar bill you used to carry in your wallet. It's not really money. It's a temporary voucher that comes with strings attached and that allows both public and private actors with access to that information, whether it's the government or banks or other you know, financial institutions, it allows them unprecedented levels of surveillance and control. Once this is tied into the biometric data that I talked about earlier, um, it's going to be very easy for the government or private actors uh, to know what you're to know what you're doing to know with some approximate uh estimate what you're feeling and to glean from that kind of probably what you're thinking at any given moment how is that going to work well imagine watching the presidential debates on tv and uh you know your digital id is tracking your heart rate and your blood pressure moment to moment and so it, it you know the algorithm can tell uh, what you're feeling when a particular candidate is talking right are you getting warm fuzzy feelings or are you getting kind of angry and irritated right that's pretty useful information for people that are interested in controlling your behavior and that's an obvious political application of this kind of technology but of course you know the the other people who for 100 years have been very interested in nudging behavior in a particular direction are advertisers, right? This is going to be the ultimate form of, of um, kind of market coercion and uh, the, the, the surveillance capitalism that Shoshana Zuboff and others have been talking about now for four or five years is going to take a quantum leap with the next steps in the biomedical security state, uh, the, the digital IDs, the central bank digital currencies, and the other, the other things that I talk about in the book in terms of how this is how this is going to roll out, how the new abnormal is going to advance uh, very soon in the coming years, if people don't wake up and recognize what's going on and decide that that we're going to push back 
Yeah, I've got Shoshana's book uh, as well <laughs> right behind me. Uh, and yeah, they'll uh, that system will determine whether you can buy. Um, you'll you'll only be able to buy stock uh, with with bug burgers or real um, burgers. And you also touch on in your book. I, I wanted to bring up uh, religion. You know, I don't want to bang on people's heads, but you talk about this new uh, religion. Others have talked about it. I mean, I saw an interview not long ago with um, former Google head uh, Eric Schmidt. Uh, t- discussing a book he uh, i think he co-wrote w- with uh, henry kissinger and others where uh, he was f- uh, referencing kissinger talking about we're in this historical situation where either we're going to go to like another global you know civil war or 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 um you know g- collapse or a new religion is going to be created and these are the guys that won't shut up about ai and what, what you've been talking about fusing man and and machine transhumanism and so in your book you talk about scientism neo this uh it's neo-gnosticism uh transhumanism but also uh you write quote an increasingly wide range of human activities from reproduction to religion could come under surveillance and technological control uh end quote you you've referenced michael rechnewald and nick corbishley who have been uh guests on this podcast and you refer to this global uh state I, i can't help but refer to the book of revelation again which prophecies the end of history and describes a time where a world state sort of comes about uh, together with a system or means by which people are prohibited from buying or selling if they do not submit themselves um, to this system and reigning uh, ideology. So as you mentioned, uh, you know, you're not on board completely with, you know, whether it's transgender or climate change or masking up or the COVID mandates or, or whatever it is, you're locked out and you can't buy food. We saw that in the pandemic. You know, I was living in Kazakhstan at the time. They gave us a card, the authorities in 2020, they said one day you cannot leave your apartment. There were police patrols. You can only leave every other day. Only one person with the card can go to the bank, pharmacy, or um, was it bank, pharmacy, or, or, or supermarket? And it's 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 frightening. It's like this horror, you know, sci-fi horror dystopian film that we're literally uh, living in. In Philippines, people uh, unvaccinated could not leave their homes. If they were caught on the street, they could be, I, I guess, fined or taken to quarantine camp. So just your, your thought on the religious aspect of this transhumanism, yeah. as well as, you know, as you referenced the book of Revelation. Yeah. So in chapter three of the book and um, you know, at the risk of, of sounding apocalyptic, uh, I do think that there is a, a religious aspect to what I call the biomedical security state. Uh, and so in chapter three, I talk about the whole transhumanist movement, which is very influential in Silicon Valley, extremely influential among globalist elites. And I, I talk about how the ideology of the biomedical security state fits in hand in glove with the ideal ideology of transhumanism. And the next steps in the rollout of the biomedical security state are perfectly consonant with uh, transhumanism. So are all the you know individual actors who are advancing the biosecurity paradigm, are they all transhumanists? No, they're, they're not necessarily. But uh, the, the Venn diagram, the overlap between those two camps is, uh, is very large. And so it's important, I think, for us to understand uh, how transhumanism is influencing, you know, the Davos elites, the Silicon Valley elites, because, as I describe in the book, transhumanism is a sort of microwaved reprisal of ancient Gnostic religions. And the ancient Gnostic religions, which were sort of competing with Christianity in the early days of uh, Christianity in the early centuries AD, they had a couple of uh, a couple of key things in common with the trends that we're seeing today. One is a sort of disdain the body. The body is just raw material that the sovereign will can can manipulate. And indeed, something that needs to be eventually overcome. You know, and and this has been sort of techno updated with transhumanism in terms of overcoming the limitations of the body uh, and creating even, you know, something that is a higher form of the human species or a new species of human beings entirely that through gene editing, through uh, cybernetics, through nanotechnology, through figuring out ways to basically sort of fuse our mental life with digital technologies, we'll be able to transcend the material limitations of the body. 
which is which is really a religious aspiration if you stop and think about it. Um, you know, the the created order, uh, the order inscribed in human nature and in the body is not something to be regarded and respected and, and worked with, which is how traditional Hippocratic medicine operated. It's something to be overcome. The raw, the body has no meaning. It's just raw material that we can do whatever we want with. And eventually, once techno- technology allows us to do so, it's something that we can discard. So I believe transhumanism, just like the ancient Gnostic religions, is a, is a sort of dehumanizing ideology. And that's why I spent some time in chapter three uh, talking about it and tying it into the underlying ideology that is driving what I call the new abnormal, the, the biomedical security state that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring up, uh, just get your reaction to this. Uh, you know, BBC Today uh, reports that the Shanghai Disney uh, world or Disneyland has become the latest high profile venue to shut its gates thanks to China's strict zero COVID policy, trapping um, visitors inside. You know, Hotel California uh, comes to mind. You can check check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And it says people have been told they will not be allowed out of the theme park until they can show a negative test. Uh, you know, just, just send any reaction uh, to that. Oh, wow. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it. you could make a dystopian movie about being stuck in. I mean, I live in Southern California. I've been to Disneyland, you know, many times when people come to visit. And I, it's fun to go there with children. But by the end of the day, um, you know, if I had to stay in, if I had to stay in a place like that, and if I had to stay in fantasy land for days or, or weeks on end, I, I think I would. I would go crazy. I probably would lose my mind. You would need to hospitalize me. Um, yeah, talk about a, a strange dystopian world where people are being locked into into Disneyland. But uh, and of course, I mean, we could look to China and the Chinese social credit system, the draconian nightmare lockdowns that we have seen over the last few months in Shanghai. That the whole sort of COVID theater that has gone to maniacal heights in China. We could take that as a harbinger of uh, what could happen here if we're if we're not careful. And again, people are going to say, well, you know, carry out a year. Well, don't compare the United States to China. China's ruled by a dictator. Um, it's a it's a communist or a communist capitalist sort of hybrid state. Uh, but we're living in a free democracy. So, you know, stop trying to scare people with these analogies to China. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of the pandemic and the first massively misguided and massively harmful, uh, ineffective policy that we adopted, which was lockdowns. People forget the birthplace of lockdowns, which were never a part of traditional public health and were never a part of the WHO or CDC pandemic guidelines prior to COVID. They're a wholly novel invention that was rolled out for the first time worldwide during the COVID pandemic. The birthplace of lockdowns, a term which comes from the penal system, right? prisons locked down when prisoners riot, the, the most highly surveilled and controlled setting on the planet is, is where that term originates. Uh, but public health lockdowns originated in Wuhan, China. And Italy took its cues from Wuhan. And uh, Michael Sanger and others have done some interesting work recently looking at how the public key public health officials in Italy, which was the second country to lock down, had strong ch- ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So Italy locked down. Then Drs. Fauci and Burks in the United States decided that lockdowns were the way to go to manage this pandemic. And we could speculate on their motivations for that, but even just bracketing that for a minute, we locked down in March and the rest of the world very quickly followed suit. If the United States is doing it and their public health agencies, which are supposedly the best and most scientific in the world, are doing it, then we better do it, too. So in very short order, the Western world collectively lost its mind and took its cues on managing a pandemic from the Chinese Communist Party and from CCP propaganda. China had announced, we now know this to be totally false, 
but it had announced in early 2020 that it had stamped out the virus entirely in Wuhan and surrounding regions through these draconian, highly surveilled lockdowns. That turned out not to be true. We should have known that it was not true. Uh, what we knew about this respiratory virus already should have convinced us that you cannot prevent the spread of the virus once it's out there by locking down. We now know that is absolutely true because despite the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masks, the plastic barriers, the school closures, the mass vaccination campaign, in spite of all these things that were supposed to stop or slow the spread of the virus, 90% of Americans still got COVID, right? So these things didn't work. They didn't achieve their public health purpose. And instead they did massive, massive collateral damage in terms of our mental health, in terms of our physical health with other illnesses, uh, you know, the, the economy, which is directly related to uh, issues of morbidity and mortality in medicine. Uh, but we took our cues on that first uh, misguided and massively destructive policy from the Chinese Communist Party. So this idea that what happens in China is just going to stay in China and we're not going to operate in that way. Well, it, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not convinced that that is true. All you have to do is look at the last three years and look at our response to COVID to see that we were not thinking independently. We were not critically scrutinizing what was coming out of, of China. And we behaved in a, in a way that was completely and totally reckless, succumbing to uh, the same propaganda that the Chinese Communist Party used against its own people. Yeah, and you know what you talked about is you know that's the 2010 Rockefeller um, lockstep document references China modeling this response. You, you go into that in the book. You talk about pandemic simulations, and th there's much more in the book that we don't have time for. And I wanted to turn towards a solution. And I think you, you tweeted uh, yesterday or, or, or today that um, well, you know, one thing that I've been seeing is over the past two years, I I've had on leftists, conservatives, libertarians, and, and, and others, and we've all sort of come together to fight this authoritarian uh, global, as you call it, biomedical security state. And uh, it seems like nothing else matters at this point. You, you, you tweeted, quote, the real division today is no longer left, right, liberal, conservative, or, or even Democrat, Republican. It's between those who will accept a technocratic biosecurity surveillance regime and those who will uh, resist. And so, um, you know, thoughts on... On, on that, as well as, you know, I, I feel like they want to make Native Americans or Palestinians of us all. You say um, this regime has encountered pockets of resistance around the world. I think we saw recently the premier of Alberta and Canada recently declaring that humans are not QR codes. I, I go further and I summon the ghost of number six, Patrick McGuhan's character in The Prisoner, who says we are not to be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed or numbered. Uh, we are not Amen. numbers. And so, you know. How do we, you know, what do we do? How do we kill this biomedical security state? So we need to collect, uh, so next steps, we need to collectively reject digital IDs and central bank digital currencies, full stop. They're going to pitch them in Western nations in terms of convenience, use a kind of velvet glove, a slow walk approach to this. And uh, we don't want to be caught unawares. These things are going to be massively harmful to individual citizens' rights. So we need to reject those things. We need a mechanism in place to rein in the ability of executives, whether the president or a governor, or a premier, uh, to unilaterally declare a, a, a public health emergency because the executive is the very person who not only declares the emergency, but accrues the additional powers that go along with that declaration. And as we know, as we should know, anyone who studies history knows, when people gain new additional powers, they're going to be re very reluctant to give them up. So President Biden announced a month or so ago on 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over. And many people in his administration sort of freaked out when he said that. And the reason they panicked is because they knew that if the pandemic was over, then the federal state of emergency would need to be over and sundown. And those federal agencies that had accrued additional powers and the president himself would need to relinquish those additional powers. So 
in the United States and, and other countries are going to have their own models for this. But in the U.S., I advocate for appropriate constitutional checks and balance balances on this state of exception. Uh, so you need maybe to allow the president to declare a state of emergency for two weeks, you know, give Congress enough time to, to gather and then they need to legislatively ratify that. And it should be legislatively ratified every time it's continued beyond a very short period of time so that we can hold elected elected officials accountable. And so you can have that check on the executive power. The other thing that, that could be useful in this regard is we we have deliberately never defined in law what constitutes a public health emergency. So, you know, the number of cases, the number of hospital beds, uh, the uh, number of deaths, we would argue about what the appropriate criteria would be, but we could democratically, with the give and take of, of debate, we could decide on something, some threshold that would allow us not only to know when it is appropriate to declare an emergency, but also when the emergency is over, right? That would allow for judicial review, um, you know, for citizens to bring a case saying that the state of emergency in California is no longer justified under California's criteria set out in law. And a judge could say, yeah, you're right. And the state of emergency has to. And so we've got it. That's state of emergency is sort of an abstract legal concept. And uh, so it's uh, but it's important, I think, for people to wrap their heads around. That is the basic legal mechanism that led to everything else during the pandemic. So we we definitely need that as well. We need to rein in the power of the surveillance state, both public and private actors. Again. Shoshana Zuboff's work on big tech. Uh, we also need to decouple these euphemistically termed uh, public-private partnerships, where uh, corporations are giving are given new powers and new access by state actors, and states try to use corporations as their executive instruments. So, I have another lawsuit which I don't describe in the book because uh, we filed it after I submitted the book for publication. Uh, Missouri v. Biden uh, involves the attorney generals of two states, Missouri and Louisiana, and four private plaintiffs. I'm one of them. Two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration are also plaintiffs in that case, Martin Kulldorff, um and Jay Bhattacharya. And we are alleging, and on discovery now, we have uh, quite a bit of evidence uh, uh, corroborating our claim that the government uh, and specifically the executive branch and executive agencies, uh, intelligence ag agencies, public health agencies, were basically dictating to social media what they needed to censor. And arguably, I say arguably because there's debate about this, but arguably private companies like social media companies can decide, you know, what goes on their platform and what gets kicked off. But inarguably, what, what, no, one, <laughs> what no one can plausibly maintain uh, the, the federal government cannot do that. It's a clear First Amendment free speech violation. And, uh, and we believe that's exactly what happened during the pandemic. These companies are terrified of any form of government regulation. So with the implicit threat of regulation, they kowtowed. They, they, basically, uh, they basically did whatever Biden or his, uh, or his appointed officials were telling them to do. Down to, you know, why isn't this specific guy, you know, been removed from Twitter? Oh, okay. We'll take him out. You know, we'll take him out. Um, that level of, of specificity coming from public health agencies clearly constitutes a violation of uh, free speech rights of Americans. And the latest development in that case, which we're very pleased with, is that the judge has agreed uh, that Dr. Fauci and many other key government officials, including uh, the Surgeon General, including the press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, and the new press secretary, Jean-Pierre, and others who were involved in the current administration's pandemic response, they're, they're all going to be deposed. They're all going to have to answer questions under oath, which is something that none of them have had to do uh, regarding this issue yet. And, you know, I always ask my guests, you know, plan B. What happens if the uh, new abnormal, the, the biomedical security state marches on um, 
And I have, you know, my listeners, uh, many of who, whom I've met with uh, around the world here in Mexico. I spent three months recently in Europe in, in my other home of Croatia. And I, I was having uh, lunch with listeners uh, as far as out there. And many people that I know, I mean, so many people are fleeing to places like Mexico. I consult with people and they're running to the hills, literally out of urban areas, buying farms to be, you know, at least you have your own food and water, uh, you know, and, you know, forming networks, parallel societies and structures and economies and that sort of thing. So uh, do you have any thought on if, 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 if we, you know, if this dystopia marches on, well, okay, how do we survive in it? Yeah, those are all good and necessary developments. I think, um, you know, regardless of what happens with the new abnormal, with the advance of the biomedical security state, we need parallel institutions that can challenge the hegemony of many of our institutions, whether scientific, medical, public health, uh, communications, uh, social media, competition is good. Uh, and there will be an attempt certainly to si- sideline and to uh, sometimes squash those parallel institutions if they pose any sort of challenge. But I think the first thing is is even simpler. So we we should... We should engage in the creative work that's going on in that regard. And the central theme of that needs to be decentralization, right? Decentralized uh, cryptocurrencies, decentralized blockchain methods of communication that will make censorship more difficult, Um, secure and encrypted methods of communicating with others. But uh, so we can push back on some of the digital control, but we also need to maintain face-to-face contact with people. And this is something that everyone can do on a small scale. Get together, meet with people in public places, face-to-face for any purpose and refuse in the future to allow those public spaces to be taken away from you, right? Take the mask off. Masks don't work. Talk to people, meet with people face-to-face whether it's a book club, whether it's, you know, we listen to the, an episode of this podcast, we get together and discuss it. Um, find ways to connect with friends, neighbors, families, other like-minded people, uh, because those institutions of civil society, what uh, what Edmund Burke called little platoons, the, the mediating institutions that de, Toc- de Tocqueville was so impressed with, when he visited the United States and he wrote about in Democracy in America, that was precisely what was taken from us during the pandemic. And when people are locked at home, when they're communicating only behind a screen and screens are great, right? You and I would not be able to have this conversation if not for this digital technology. So, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but when people can only communicate in this way, they're easier to control because you can control the information that comes to them. I'm convinced that vaccine mandates and vaccine passports would never have been accepted by the general population if not for the year plus long lockdowns that preceded them, right? People were locked down. They were deprived of human contact. Many of them died alone, um, you know, couldn't get together with their families for Thanksgiving, couldn't attend the funeral of a loved one that they had lost, uh, really a kind of nightmare society for over a year. And the stress and anguish of that basically got people to the point where they said, I'm willing to do anything, right? Maybe I have some concerns about this vaccine. Maybe I, I want to, you know, want to see it uh, kind of tested on some other people before, but I'm willing to do anything to get back to a normal life. And those carrots and sticks were used, right? You Okay, you want to go visit your mother that you haven't seen in over a year and you need to fly to Canada? Well, you better get the vaccine, right? Otherwise, forget about it. So those things were stolen from us. And then additional coercion and coercive measures were required for us to even start getting those things back. All of that became a moving target because it was ultimately about control, right? So your, your vaccine passport didn't have a fixed expiration date. It had a moving expiration date that could change, you know, at any moment. So it, it, it wasn't really a passport at all. It was what I characterize in the new abnormal as a temporary voucher for living. 
issued by the government that could be rescinded at any moment. So we need to refuse to uh, accept the idea that ordinary civil liberties, right, gathering in public spaces, free speech, uh, free association, travel, uh, access to basic goods and services, these are not privileges conferred by a government or as a reward for good behavior. These are inalienable rights that we should never relinquish, even under a declared state of emergency. Most people during a crisis want to do the right thing and will do the right thing if it's scientifically grounded, you know, without being forced to do it. So this whole idea that we need coercive measures in order to get people to do the right thing uh, is just entirely unconvincing. There's no empirical evidence to support it. I, I, I cite in the book evidence actually to the contrary, that um, under declared states of emergency, there are usually more casualties, even when you control for the severity of the you know, natural disaster or whatever the emergency was about. So we've accepted and swallowed all of these things with no evidence that they actually advance their stated aims. And I think instead of advancing public health or the public good, instead, they've just ad advanced this biosecurity state, these novel methods of surveillance and control. And that's going to continue happening until we collectively stand up and start pushing back. But you can do this on a small scale. You, you know, you say, well, I don't have a microphone. I don't have a podcast. I'm, I'm you know, not really in a position of authority. What can I do? Start with face-to-face -face meetings. Start with face-to-face -face conversations. Begin small. That's where we really need uh, resistance. We need, you know, 100,000 grassroots efforts more than we need the right person in elected office. Yeah, great uh, final thoughts. And I also, uh, you have more on that in the book. And I also like how you say, stop self-censoring. And uh, some of my Mexican friends and intellectuals, we have a little group and they're big fans of yours. They're like, I can't believe you're interviewing Dr. Kiriati. And because they hold you, people like you in high esteem, because from the very beginning, you were not censoring yourself. And, um, you know, you were getting burned uh, in the fire, uh, you know, suffering the consequences. And yeah, that, that's what we need to do. Just uh, last thing, where's the best? Uh, you're on Twitter, you're on Telegram, um, you know. Where's the best place to uh, find you online? You, if you want, I'll, I'll I'll include all the links in the description. But if you want, to just let us know. Yeah, so I'm more active on Twitter than Telegram, so that's where I do most of my posting. At a Cariotti uh, is my Twitter handle. I also have a Substack called Human Flourishing, so you could just search for Human Flourishing Substack, um, or that's at a uh, AaronCariotti.substack.com, where I post writings. I've posted a couple of excerpts from the book. If you're not sure you want to read it, but you just want to get a taste of it, go to my Substack. Uh, most of the stuff on there is not behind a paywall, um, though I'm happy if people signed up for a paid subscription as well. So those are my two means of communication, my Substack newsletter called Human Flourishing, and uh, and then on Twitter as well. And uh, you, know, you can find links there on my Substack also to other interviews that I've done and uh, other things that I've I've published in in other places. And yeah, be, be sure to follow Dr. Cariati on the socials and get the book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. As I said, I got a free advanced copy, but I'm going to get the physical in, in case, you know, they start memory holding, uh, you know, everything. <laughs> That's yeah. it, it, uh, Amazon's done that before. They actually have deleted books off people's Kindle. Uh, actually, it happened to, uh, I think, 1984. <laughs> I think it was the book. So anyways, thank you for bringing on Geopolitics and Empire. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing that it happened. And I, you know, they can also just delete a sentence or two here and there from the book and you wouldn't even wouldn't even realize that it's being censored as well. So, yes, I've I've started building up my own personal library of hardcover books. Um, and, you know, the paper copy uh, is is you know, Kindle is great. I use it for certain things. But if you want to make sure you get every word of of what I wrote, uh, go ahead and order the hardback. It ships tomorrow. So. Uh, but you can pre-order it today and it'll ship uh, tomorrow on the official publication date. It's available also on Audible for immediate download if people like audiobooks. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. 
The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.